On Monday, April 10th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a conversation with Heather McGee, president of Demos. The talk was titled, Our Democracy at a Crossroad. The conversation with McGee was moderated by Miles Rappaport, senior practice fellow at the Ash Center. Rappaport was most recently president of Common Cause and was previously the head of Demos. Arkan Fung, academic dean and Ford Foundation professor of democracy and citizenship at the Harvard Kennedy School, provided an introduction. Uh, it's great this afternoon to have Miles Rappaport and Heather McGee talking about current challenges to democracy and what might we might do about it. As most of you uh, in the room, or many of you in the room know, both uh, Miles and Heather are closely, closely associated with Demos, which is a public policy organization located in New York, which was founded in 2000 and works primarily on two large issues. One is economic equality or inequality, and the second is American democracy and the quality of democracy. Uh, Demos uh, supports, quote, an economy where everyone has an equal chance and a democracy where everyone has an equal say. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> Demos develops and advocates for substantive policies in the short term, working closely with advocates, organizers, and policymakers, uh, working in the short term, but then also looking over the long-term horizon at major structural issues facing both our economy and our democracy. Demos has helped win state-level pro-voting reforms such as same-day registration of over, uh, in over 12 states, enforced uh, NVRA across the country, that's the National Voting Rights Act, leading to 3.5 million new low-income voter registration applications and has fought very, very hard for new forms of campaign financing, uh, including one model that's being implemented in Seattle. We have two presidents of Demos. Miles was the first president of Demos and is now uh, our first senior practice fellow in American democracy. Uh, he directed Demos, did a bunch of stuff before that, then directed Common Cause, then came to the Ash Center. He was executive director of Demos for 13 years and has a long career of working on deepening democracy issues in America, serving as Secretary of State in Connecticut for 10 and then uh, after 10 years, and then 10 years uh, as state representative before that. At the Ash Center, he's working on all sorts of challenges to American democracy, and in particular is working to help connect democracy practitioners in the world out there, uh, working at organizations such as Common Cause and Demos to the world of democracy scholarship that's happening at the, at the Ash Center, at the Kennedy School, and other places around Harvard. And this event, which uh, Miles organized, is a great example of that bridging and connection. Heather McGee became president of Demos in 2014 after working uh, in the organization for eight years. She is one of the leading voices in national and media conversations about race, voting rights, campaign finance, and the future of American democracy. Um, she's uh, been uh, in the media lots and lots. She was on WGBH just uh, last week, and uh, I saw the clip that Miles sent around with Heather's uh, testimony before the Senate confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, which is very, very good. I thought you were going to talk about Gorsuch and, and the, the judicial, his uh, judicial philosophy and so on, but you pivoted very, very quickly to the bread and butter issues of Demos, which is American democracy and campaign finance, um, and in particular how the Supreme Court is, um, uh, has ratified and approved laws that allow lots and lots of 
uh, private money into American politics right now. So uh, with that, I'll hand it over to Miles and Heather to do the conversation. We really look forward uh, to talking with you this afternoon. Thank you. Archon, thank you very much, and thanks to all of you for coming. It's a nice, uh, uh, nice turnout. Say for me, it's uh, wonderful to have Heather be the first kind of person I brought to the, to the campus in a way. Um, for me, the 13 years that I spent as president of Demos uh, in New York were really great years, uh, building an institution that I think has have, had real impact on our democracy issues and on economic justice issues and um, left it uh, in good standing and in, good, and in better hands. Mm -hmm. And in the three years that, uh, that Heather has been the president of Demos, it's gone into fabulous uh, new places, and she has become a real kind of um, mains, uh, mainstay, is what I mean, of the progressive debate on, uh, on all of these issues. So I think it's great, and I think you'll understand why shortly. So Heather, welcome. Thank you very, very much. And let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. I'll give you a, chance, a little chance. So where did you, how did you come by your values, and how did you decide to become a public policy advocate and... How'd you get started? That's great. Well, uh, I just, first of all, want to say thank you to everyone who's uh, shielding themselves from the lovely sun outside and by coming into this building at 2 in the afternoon um, to hear this conversation. I particularly want to thank uh, the team here at the Ash Center for, for hosting and Miles to you for taking the opportunity of a talk I was giving at Harvard Law School at the Harvard Law Forum earlier today to organize this event um, here at Ash, which... Um, I did go to law school, but um, as I'll explain in a minute, I, I do have an attachment to the Kennedy School. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you all. So I grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago uh, in the 1980s, um, and my, uh, my mother um, was at the time a holistic health practitioner, way before that was cool. Um, and she was working... Um, on nutrition and health in the Robert Taylor projects, um, uh, the Robert Taylor public housing uh, projects with uh, you know single mothers, and had kind of become like a community healer. I mean, people we couldn't walk down the street in Hyde Park and the South Shore without people sort of stopping us and saying, you know, you helped my mother control her diabetes. You you know she was like a baby maker. Everybody she cured everybody's fertility. And she ended up moving uh, kind of upstream and recognizing that you really can't heal a physical body that is in an unwell social body and really began pioneering the idea of the social determinants of health that we now uh, know so well, uh, really how the inequality in our society makes us sick. Um, and so I grew up with, um, you know, with parents who were very focused on social justice. Um, and more importantly, who really um, connected the individual concerns of people in working class communities to sort of more upstream policy drivers. Um, so I kind of come by it really rightly. My mother then went on to um, actually be the director of the Innovation in American Government program here at the Kennedy School when she, uh, when it got its big $50 million Ford I was like, yes, I remember the $50 million, <laughs> yes, um, uh, for grant. Her name is Dr. Gail Christopher, um, and she is now at the Kellogg Foundation. So 
So I come by it very rightly, um, and um, I started working at Demos when I was 22 years old. So in some ways, I grew up with the organization, grew up at the knee of this guy and of Brenda Wright, who joined the organization just a couple of years later, um, and feel so fortunate that the ideas that animated Demos at its founding um, about the connection between the inequality in our democracy and the inequality in our economy. Um, you know, we were absolutely ahead of the curve in talking about those big structural problems and offering big, bold solutions to them 17 years ago. And it really does feel that in many ways, uh, I wish we weren't so right uh, about the, the stakes and about the structural challenges we have to actually realizing the promise of a multiracial demos actually having a voice in setting the policies that shape our lives. Um, but it also feels like a really important time for this institution. And I feel so fortunate that Miles uh, groomed me to take, to take over uh, and to be ready for this moment. Well, that's a good segue to my second question, which is... I'd <laughs> I love swear to, I have not seen the questions <laughs> in advance. <laughs> I'd love to have people here learn a little bit more about Demos, which yeah. is probably a name that they've heard, but if you had, they had to describe it, wouldn't be able to. So say a little bit yes, about Demos. Yes, and they may not work. even be able to pronounce it well. So in their, in their infinite wisdom, the founders of Demos decided to have... Um, you know, to keep us in the in the ivory tower <laughs> by having our name be in ancient Greek. <laughs> um, so when I first started working at Demos in 2002, I had no idea what the what it meant. You know, I did I didn't didn't know my Greek. I did not know that Demos meant the people of a nation and the root word of democracy. Um, and over time, uh, I've go grown to really actually love the name. Uh, as difficult as it can be when you go on TV and the host doesn't even know how to pronounce it and says demos and you have to sort of correct them and the commercial break. Um, because uh, the idea of a demos, of a people of a nation um, that feels some sense of shared fate, shared purpose, uh, to me is more than ever the great unfinished business of American democracy and of our society overall. Can we, a nation of ancestral strangers, where there's somebody here, and increasingly so, with a tie to every community on the globe, can we find a sense of belonging with one another um, so that we can create the kind of politics that helps provide for our common future, that helps share resources uh, and helps uh, really pr foster a kind of civic culture where people really have a say, no matter what their background. And, of course, we know that right now that is very far from where we are, that our system of, of uh, civic participation, of campaign financing, um, of voting, you know, is really deeply unequal, and it, it falls along lines of race and class and gender and age. Um, our electorate uh, is skewed, uh, and the rules that we have to determine who gets to register and how and who and when, who gets to vote and when, um, make that the case. We have one out of every four eligible citizens is not even registered to vote, which is why Demos has been focused from its outset. Uh, I think that's what happens when you have a former Secretary of State as the 
uh, founding president. Um, from its outset, we've been focused on changing the rules and the practices of government to make it easier for particularly just working class folks to be registered and then become visible citizens to the political process. So Pam Cataldo, who's here, is a paralegal and field investigator. And you might have thought, well, ooh, what is Demos doing with a field investigator? Um, uh, Pam um, goes out to, as part of our NVRA, which is the National Voter Registration Act, the Motor Voter Law, as part of that work, goes out to social service agencies uh, and public agencies across the country and states and asks people if they, as they are walking out and they've just gotten benefits, um, did, were you offered the chance to register to vote? And most of the time they say no because um, even though it's federal law to incorporate voter registration into the provision of, of public benefits, most states are not in compliance. And so we have over the past decade uh, sued dozens of states, probably a couple dozens, says, says Brenda, um, to lead to the government proactively changing their systems to register people when you interact with them, including in health benefits exchanges, social service, disability offices, welfare, etc. We think that core idea that the onus for registration uh, should be on the government instead of on uh, individual citizens to have to walk through the maze of figuring out how to um, uh, become registered we think that is, is the way the country needs to go. Automatic voter registration, where the uh, state pre-populates the voting rolls with the information that they have and asks people if they want to opt out, is, is really the next, um, uh, or opt-in, there are two different systems, but is really the next um, kind of wave, and we've been involved in a bunch of campaigns to do that as well. So we also work on money and politics. Um, uh, as Archon said, I was uh, testifying uh, with the help of Brenda, um, who, uh, who helped me do a crash course of the week prior to the uh, testimony at the Senate Judiciary Committee two weeks ago, dusting off my, my law school <laughs> knowledge, which has been very, uh, <laughs> been a little sleepy since I graduated from Boltall. Um, and, you know, walked into the Senate Judiciary Committee and was lined up with people who were talking about various different reasons why Neil Gorsuch should or should not be confirmed. But we felt that it was important for the long-term uh, goal that we have to overturn not only Citizens United but revisit the Buckley v. Vallejo decision, uh, which asserted that money was speech, not just that corporations were people, but money was speech for the purposes of campaign finance. Um, we wanted to really use Neil Gorsuch, who had a bad record on money and politics, was to the right of Scalia on these issues, on corporate power and uh, disclosure and uh, Citizens United. Um, we wanted to use this as a moment to, to drive that agenda and to make um, what really is a bipartisan issue that actually gets Citizens United, which is the disgust with our campaign finance big money system. Um, we wanted to use that as an opportunity to drive that. So. Our democracy reform agenda includes both getting big money out and uh, bringing, you know, particularly young people, working class people, the people who are so often distorted out of our electorate into our system. All right, great. All right, a few more questions for me, and then we'll open it up uh, to, uh, to everyone. Um, I would say in, in the last three years under your leadership, uh, Demos has been uh, institutionally, and you have been personally, 
um, you know, one of the leading voices on the issue of uh, how race and democracy interact, how our how we can actually overcome all of the historical, um, you know, barriers to create a real demos mm -hmm. uh, and a real people. So, what's the state of that conversation now? What do we we're need winning. to do? <laughs> <laughs> we're so we're almost sick of winning. <laughs> Um, I um, uh, thank you for that question, Miles. Uh, you know, race has been the organizing principle of American politics since before our founding. Right? And um, right after the election, um, you know, that night, as I sort of walked like a zombie from the uh, election watch party, that I was attending with much of Demo staff members, many of Demo staff members, um, home, I started formulating a response, a written response that we would send out to our, um, all of our supporters. And we ended up sending it out at about six in the morning, um, which took away three lessons. One, that race remains the organizing principle of our politics, that the Trump campaign offered a white identity politics of the kind that we had not seen in generations. And that at a time of demographic change, at a time of a perceived uh, progress for people of color and immigrants, and most importantly, in a background of a racial narrative driven by the right wing in which people of color and immigrants um, are clear and present threats to white security, um, that identity politics was going to be a pretty toxic and, and powerful brew that it would have taken a lot to, to overcome in a country where no white majority has voted for a Democratic candidate since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law. Second, that record economic inequality has electoral consequences. This should not seem surprising, but when... Half of American families couldn't go buy, couldn't pay a $400 bill without going into debt or selling something. That a vote for the economic status quo um, was never going to be a mobilizing option, particularly for people who should be the progressive base, economically struggling families of all races, single women, young people, immigrants, people of color. And then third, that at that populism. Um, and we should have known this from the global climate since the financial crash, um, that populism is going to win even if it's phony populism, when it's going to be a populism versus an establishment choice, um, populism can win, uh, and we should expect it to win, particularly when it's shot through with the kind of ethno-nationalism that we've seen in virtually every other uh, country that has uh, had it as a political option, and here in the United States. So the feedback loop between identity, which in our country, you know, race is the kind of fulcrum, but it, it's a much broader meaning, right? I think identity in politics is how you figure out your worth, your relative social status, who belongs, who's excluded, who deserves. 
our shorthand for that is racialization, but it, 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 I think it means a lot more, and it's particularly politically salient. The connection between race, a sense of economic competition with a dwindling pie, and an anti-establishment moment at a time when the face of the establishment was uh, you know, an African-American man passing the torch to a white woman was a pretty powerful combination that led us to this place. In addition, the system is rigged in terms of the electorate, in terms of the first uh, election that we've had without the protections of the Voting Rights Act uh, in three generations, and the wave of just unbelievably effective uh, voter suppression tactics um, from closing polling places to shutting down early voting to, of course, requiring strict photo ID. Um, we don't really, and I wonder what people think about this, particularly here at the Ash Center, I don't think we really have a functioning democracy in this country. I think it is an aspiration. It's always been an aspiration. Um, you know, the founders did not uh, intend for the... Uh, at at the time of our founding, what we think of as a democracy, where everyone who is a citizen uh, has a say. Um, and that's okay. We're a young country. We're an extremely wealthy country with a ton of opportunity and diversity that we have not fully contended with. And we are also a country that is increasingly going to be led by the largest, most diverse, most educated, most active uh, generation in American history who are going to want to aim, I think, a bit higher for uh, the level of self-efficacy and impact that a democracy, the promise of self-governance, uh, suggests. So I think we're at a moment of um, great hope. I'm very optimistic. I think it's going to take 20 years, but I also think that the level of civic participation and engagement that we're seeing is a necessary counterweight to the organizing that has happened from those who fear democracy, um, which, is, which is the stakes and which is the fight right now. Great. Thank you. I think I'm going to open it up now. I have a few more questions, but I think let me open it up, and then if they haven't been touched mm -hmm. on, I'll come back at the end. Thank you. Uh, I think I saw a hand at the in the back. Did I or no? All right. Anybody have a question they'd like to ask, Melissa? Thanks so much for your for your diagnosis. I think of where we are. I found it. I find it really compelling. But I was really curious about well, your invocation of identity mm -hmm. politics, and and your opening characterization of demos and mm -hmm. the meaning of the concept mm -hmm. and the idea of being a people who share a fate is that a kind of identity that is 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 the task in part to create a new identity and if mm -hmm. so then how do you understand the relationship between that shared democratic identity and the other group identities that mm -hmm. we will probably be carrying for some time mm -hmm. very good question just an easy one <laughs> Um, but I do, I do, I do think that that is the task. Um, here's, I mean, and this is just from where I sit. This is not, um, 
you know, these are just these are just my impressions. Um, but I do think that as our country that our country's as our country's population is increasingly multiracial themselves, right? Individuals themselves being multiracial. Um, ideally, and this takes work, living in integrated communities and workplaces and schools, right? That's, that's not an automatic because of a d more diverse population, but it's something we know how to work towards and we certainly can. Um, as this country ends up being the place where all the people of the peoples of the world <laughs> have met, um, and, and this is what is deeply troubling to some people, and as there is no longer um, a claim of right to American identity based on being a white man, um, which is sort of who has been the shapers of this nation's power structure still to this day. 90% of elected officials at every level are, are white, right? Two-thirds are, are white men. Um, private sector even more so. Um, there is an opening for a new American identity, um, which potentially, and this is where I think, you know, if we're good, <laughs> where we have the possibility to create a new world, right? <laughs> we're supposed to have created a new world. It <laughs> didn't do so, so good. Um, uh, where perhaps we create a new American creed where the proximity of so much difference um, isn't sorted through competition and hierarchy, which is sort of what we have done to date when the difference was among European peoples. Um, but in this next century, could we possibly create, could we possibly understand the proximity of so much difference as something that invites us to actually embrace our common humanity? and give lie to the idea of a hierarchy of human value. And wouldn't doing that here in the United States, this place that was so founded on that belief, um, that's so baked in that belief to our economic system and our system of governance, uh, how amazing would that be? I think that would take work, and a lot of work that the right has obviously been very invested materially in, um, in doing the exact opposite, but I, I would say that uh, progressive forces have not taken that on as the task, um, and I think we need to. Um, I think that the youngest generation is going to be more open to it than, than most um, because we, we think intersectionally, we, we, we are... Um, uh, ready for some new American identity. Um, and, and frankly, the election of Donald Trump and the ascendance of a new white nationalism is forcing the question and forcing people to take sides and look for something, some other answer about what it means to be American, what does make America great. Great. Gina. Hello. Thank Hi. you for coming today and for your mm -hmm. comments. Um, my question kind of... Uh, is in reaction to one of your statements that we're kind of in a, a struggle right now that's going to take 20 years to kind of work through. Mm -hmm. And um, as one of the, the good things about this moment is all of the civic engagement and participation. Um, but then 
it also, a lot of it, especially among progressives, seems to be a, a kind of anti-Trump moment more mm-hmm. than a pro-progressive moment. Mm-hmm. So how do we kind of translate this mm-hmm. moment to actually sustain us through this 20-year mm-hmm. struggle or however long mm-hmm. it's going to take versus um, dying down upon impeachment or next election or right. whatever comes next? That's the right question, Regina, for sure. Um, thanks for asking it. Um, so I think that, um, yes, the lines around the block for the town hall, the five million people for the women's march, the blowing up the phones in Congress, that is an anti-Trump moment. But at the same time, it is being built. It, it is built on the Occupy moment, on the movement for black lives, on the mainstreaming of protest and social consciousness that has really shaped our public discourse, the discourse in on college campuses, in workplaces, you know, in social media, to a degree that really shouldn't be minimized as we think about what paved the way for the possibility of of the resi- of the disgust with you know an odious seeming candidate turning into something that feels like democracy and feels like a broad movement with levels of solidarity across issue and across community um, you know that were not an obvious uh, expectation so I think we should give the movements some credit for making, you know, opening the door to this place, for socializing uh, protest and involvement, making it cool. Um, And I think that we should hold our movements accountable for doing what we think of as, at Demos, the work in this moment as the visionary opposition. So not just saying what we are against, but at every time and every moment and opportunity saying what we are for as well. Um, so not just being opposed to 24 million people losing their health care and all the other ills uh, that were uh, part of Trump care, but also saying we can't be the champions of the status quo on health care or any other issue um, because the status quo is not working for working families. Um, and so we have to both say... Uh, as I think some members of Congress are beginning to do, and we're trying to help them with that, no to Trump care and yes to government negotiating drug prices. Um, no to Trump care and yes to a public option at the state exchanges that are seeing private insurers walk away. Um, yes to Medicare for all, if that's what you're for. I mean, we need to not rest on resistance. Um, but rather have an opposition that has a vision because it's clear that through impeachment, I think it's important to always just say that it's important to just keep accountability, you know, on the table. Um, Whether, you know, however it is that this administration is going to end in two weeks, four months, four years, or eight, that will happen. But what's not clear is that progressive forces will be able to marshal up a governing agenda that is inspiring and that has solutions that are big enough to meet the scales of the problem that we face. Okay. Okay. Yes. Eve. Did I miss somebody over here? All right, Eve, then Tony. Um, The mic. I I have two questions. The first one is, how important should be the change? 
Uh, I have understood that one important point in uh, Demos' struggle is Citizen United. Mm -hmm. But in most European countries, uh, the flow of money into politics is strictly limited and mm -hmm. still. Uh, we have big problems. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's very important, but mm -hmm. then so what? And, and the second question is, for the change, do you think that there is a sector which is more important than others, say party politics or social movements or community organizing or mm -hmm. unions or everything, but how to articulate everything? Mm -hmm. So, um, over, well, Specifically, overturning Citizens United is certainly not enough because it's not like we had a great system uh, in 2009 right? before the um, before the decision. Um, but I do think that the degree to which um, our the role of large donations um, and outside spending shapes who runs who wins, and most importantly, what issues are on the legislative agenda and are taken seriously during the legislative cycle means that the American political economy is more conservative and more uh, and caters more to the interests of the wealthy and corporations than certainly the social democracies of Europe. Um, the fact that, and I will now put in a plug for a report, um, Stacked Deck, which is the thick report <laughs> um, over there. We'll maybe put them out on yeah, the Yeah, we'll bring them out before. Yeah. Otherwise, um, you have to carry them home, that's so you right. have to please, take them. Please, um, uh, Talks about the connection between, and drawing on a bunch of political science that has really just done great work in the past handful of years, um, just the dependence of uh, the electoral process and the legislative process on large money and how the difference in policy preferences among the campaign donor class and even bipartisan working and middle class people um, is the difference, particularly when it comes to economic issues. So it is pretty significant, and I, I'm... I'm um, that's helpful to me because we need a path, right? We need a strategy. So in whenever you can find, you know, big blocks that are distorting our representative government, like take aim at those. Um, uh, and then in terms of your question of which parts of the sector, which sectors are more important than others, I mean, you know, it's definitely an ecosystem that is very interrelated. I will say that the loss of... Um, collective bargaining in the private sector has done tremendous damage to the distribution of wealth and the quality of jobs in our economy, but the same in terms of um, the health of our democracy. Um, you know, there just aren't that many places where working class people can organize politically. And then on the question of race, there are not that many places where working class white people um, get a sort of you know, social conditioning around um, progressive politics. And as that has been strangled, um, you've seen the, you know, the big difference between white people who are in unions and not in terms of their support for uh, 
for progressive ideas. Um, if I had to pick one. Uh, Tony Sage in the background, and Heather, I will say what, what he didn't, which is that Tony is the director of the Ash Center. I know. And so thank you very Hello. much for having us. Hi. Well, thanks for your comments. Um, I wanted to pick up on two things you mentioned and then make two comments. I agree with you very much that where you talked about the progressive agenda also needs rethinking, and that in some senses a form of populism was almost an inevitable outcome. Mm. So two comments related to that that I mean thinking about was, I think in many ways we're still dealing with the fallout from the economic crisis without really acknowledging it. And Mm -hmm. what I mean particularly by that is many of the coastal liberal elites, our lives didn't change an awful lot. I mean, I never lost tenure in the university. (laughs) So we've kind of carried on and we're still on the same agenda and we think things, you know, can still work in the same way. You know, we're talking about important issues like intersectionality and, and so forth. My daughter, who's a Vassar, is talking about it all the time mm-hmm. to me. But lives did change for a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, in rural America and small-town America. And they got hit, and they got hit hard. And I think we're still kind of working through the consequences of that without necessarily realizing it. And the second comment I'd make related to that was I was looking at some statistics. And actually, some of the worst declining health outcomes and income outcomes over the last 10 years now are actually white males living in rural America and small-town America. And so when we're thinking about building this discussion, this sort of forward-looking community, those are realities that they're struggling with. And I, and what I'm concerned about is that, and it, I think it relates to some of the comments in passing, that we're sort of shutting that out, you know, and we're rolling it into Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Yet the kind of thing you're trying to explore and you're trying to push forward has to find a way to engage with those communities as well if we're going to think what this new America might be and what this new community might be. And that just makes it much more complex. I think much less comfortable Mm -hmm. from what we've been dealing with with those discussions. Mm -hmm. Yep. So a lot there. Um, I really agree. I I think you're referencing the case in Deaton-Princeton study that found the great uh, declines in mortality, uh, particularly among middle-aged white men, uh, mostly for heart disease, opioids, and alcoholism. Still, levels of mortality are about 40% lower than that of African Americans. Right? So that's the other piece of it. And so I have to walk and chew gum at the same time in American politics. It's really quite <laughs> something. Um, but uh, so this question of, you know, um, in raw political terms, it ends up being, you know, uh, the Democrats forgot about the white working class. They lost the kind of Reagan Democrats, the Clinton Democrats, even, frankly, the Obama Democrats. Um, uh, it's really complicated because it is both true that um, you had two candidates, one that was saying the system is rigged, I'm going to tear up those trade deals that cost you not just your job, but your sense of 
being able to be, uh, you know, have a job that fit your self-image, right? I mean, there's something emblematic and iconic about manufacturing work that's not, you know, I mean, there's nothing inherently better about that job than a well-paid service sector job, except, you know, one is for white men and one is for immigrants and women and people of color, right? Um, so I'm going to restore your, your sense of self and bring back those jobs. I'm going to take on big corporations to do it, right? I'm going to call them up and force them. If not, I'm going to throw a penalty in them. I mean, I'm just going to go to town for you. I'm going to go to bat for you. Um, and then you had another candidate who you know, was wishy-washy on trade and was following an administration that was still stumping for a new NAFTA, right? Was, and that was a Democrat and a Republican, right? So um, in some ways, I, I want to make sure as we're having these sort of soul-searching post-election conversations that we're not letting progressives and Democrats off the hook for their own economic agenda, right? The economic agenda that traded away and shifted down the quality of jobs was a democratic agenda, starting with the Clintons. And people, particularly in the Rust Belt, knew that. Um, and it's not like the people of Ferguson's fault that Democrats did that. Right? It's sort of this crazy zero sum, right? It's like, it's not our corporate donors, it's the Black Lives Matter activists that stopped us from doing things in the interest of the white working class, really. Um, so it's very painful to see that kind of, you know, the parts of the progressive coalition pitted against each other that way when, in fact, the economic agenda was just not um, uh, going to do anything about the core concern of the quality and quantity of jobs. Um, and even though I, I don't think that Donald Trump's economic agenda is going to do anything, at least he said, I'm mad as hell and I'm going to, you know, believably fight for you on that. Um, and then just lastly, on I mean, this is a long conversation for sure, and it's going on in a lot of places. Um, if you haven't read... Um, Ian Haney Lopez's book, Dog Whistle Politics, um, how the right has reinvented racism and wrecked the middle class, I think is the subtitle, Oxford University Press. He's a Demos senior fellow and was my law professor at Berkeley. Um, he, it's a great book, really helps explain the right-wing racial strategy to um, keep the... Uh, perception of people of color degraded in the in the white mind, um, and you know I think we just have to recognize that that is at peak right now. I mean, the like if if you watch Fox News and if you go on Breitbart, it's like just the miasma of white fear that is being deliberately generated from you know sun up to sundown. Um, uh, so keeping the, the, the white anxiety about the threat of people of color high, even as, you know, social progress is going on, and then tying, uh, people of color to all public institutions, be they labor unions or the government, 
and therefore alienating white voters from those important countervailing institutions to corporate power. Um, so that's been the formula, sort of fear people of color, hate the government, trust the market. And um, progressives have um, been unwilling to really contend with the need to engage white people um, on questions of race as the um, sort of cost of entry to a conversation about all the issues that we care about. We think we can talk about universal health care that's called Obamacare and not try to deal with white anxiety about race. Um, and it goes through all of our issues, affordable housing, transit, public colleges being well-funded when the, you know, they're integrated public colleges and the plurality of the students are people of color. I mean, all of these questions um, of public spending on a diverse public, I think, are um, ones that progressives need to stop trying to be colorblind about because we're, we're losing. Tony, I, I want to add, I keep going, but I want to add just one sort of underpinning, uh, long-term trend underpinning to this, which is that it, I think it is not possible to think about this without understanding that not just since the financial crisis of 2008, but for the last 40 years, the incomes of the majority of American people have been stagnant or declining. And that the, the 1% and 99% that was the slogan of Occupy turned out to be reasonably precise social science. <laughs> and it's on that, you know, kind of awful terrain that all of these issues about people's anxiety and social status and racial anxieties uh, come to play. And so if you want to really kind of peel back the onion, in my view, the people who created the rules of a globalized economy in such a way that that's the trend, not just in the United States, but elsewhere for, for so many people, need to bear the brunt, in my mind. Uh, Alex. I'm sorry, Mark. And then Brian. Um, I came in late, so if you've already answered this question, just tell me to be quiet. <laughs> okay. um, I, I, the, the question very broadly is, I, I'd like to know what your thoughts are in particular about the South. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because it, you know, it, does, it does seem to me that you know, another way of thinking about Alex um, national politics uh, is that w what we've seen is the southernization of national politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the criteria that you just mm -hmm. described, the dog whistle strategy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we're all focused, understandably, right now, you know, on Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, um, those people. But the, fa the fact is, when you look at the congressional map, I, you know, I know this still shocks me because I grew up in a different era, but the South is by far the largest region in the country. Mm -hmm. It has the most seats in Congress mm -hmm. um, and the most electoral votes. And most southern states are emphatically in the red column, right? I mean, now, you know, granted, very interesting stuff in North Carolina where I used to live. And, um, but I guess, I guess I'm, wondering, I'm wondering whether you and folks at Demos, you know, mm -hmm. have been trying to give some thought to are there particular kinds of angles, strategies, approaches mm -hmm that we should all be trying to help out with the deal with the South? Yeah. Very good question, and thank you um, for that and for your work. Um, so um, 
this, the political strategy that I was referring to is called the Southern strategy. Um, and the template in many ways for a politics that kind of keeps resources in the hands of a few, dehumanizes the many, and sort of starves the public is the plantation economy, right? Um, and the political uh, institutions that are needed to support it, um, that were needed to support it, and that stay today, right, where um, the poorest places, the, pl the most unequal uh, places with the worst educational and health outcomes are still not only the South, but actually still the sites of plantations, right? Um, and that's not just because there are more poor black people. The white people are poorer there, too. Um, so, in some ways, we need to be reminded always that systems do what they were set up to do, and that if you're not doing sort of big systemic change, then, you know, you'll, whoops, you'll still have similar dynamics. Um, uh, so, what is Demos doing in the South? What are progressives thinking about in terms of the South? I mean, I feel um, there's a new vogue. Oh, this might actually be. Is it Harvard Law? Anyway, there's a new vogue for progressives to reclaim federalism. For progressives to reclaim the idea of states as the laboratories of in innovation, and um, which I think is really dangerous because. You know, I mean, 52% of black people live in the South. So it's like, great, California, secede. Like, great, California, keep innovating. Massachusetts, go single payer. Like, you know, we're still um, going to have, um, you know, our neighbors and people in the American community really suffering. So the question that Tony raised, um, I think the answer to that needs to be best and first tested, actually, in the South, where... If the only people who are talking to white audiences about race are those who are using it as a political weapon to concentrate wealth, of course we're going to end up in this place. Um, I really do think that the racial narratives of the media that um, is culturally relevant to white voters is a place that we really need to study and intervene. Because, you know, this is a very big country. Most people don't live anywhere near people who are different from them. And so we figure out who each other is through television and through the radio and through what we call reality television now, which is even scarier, right? Because it's saying this is reality. And the stereotypes there are awful, awful. Um, and particularly the right-wing news media is very, very focused. They know that there are like three racial templates. And, you know, if something does not get on their air or on their blogs, if it doesn't fit one of those templates. And on the progressive side, we're all over the place. And in fact, most of our media is, is, is you know, set by white people who have their own racial frames. And, um, and so I, I think the organizing important, the the candidates telling a different story on the stump, um, the, you know, cross-racial, uh, you know, particularly economic justice and workers' rights organizing is very important. But I also think that all of that hits, you know, I have this image, you know, of someone going, of like a white working class person going to a Bernie Sanders rally and feeling great about the story that Bernie has told that um, makes sense of the world that he lives in. And then they get back in their car and they're telling the radio 
and they have a totally different narrative that's frankly more entertaining and more prevalent um, about who actually is taking their jobs and who actually is to blame. And I think we have to do both. Um, I think we need a culturally relevant um, story of our place in the world um, for, for white people um, that explains race and identity and gender politics through a lens that's not zero-sum competition. All right. Thanks for a really interesting conversation this afternoon. Um, so one way to look at the, the work that you're doing at Demos and, and, the, and the projects you've been talking about here is that you're sort of pushing for democracy. And we've talked a lot about mm -hmm. democracy here. We're at this Center for Democratic <laughs> Governance. Um, but another way to look at it is that it's, you're pushing for these are, these are partisan goals, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, overturning Citizen United mm -hmm. works in favor of the Democratic Party right mm -hmm. now. Registering more low-income voters similarly works in favor of the Democratic Party right now. So it sort of leads me to the question, this is what I always want to ask people, activists on the left, is does the left have a monopoly on democracy in this country? Mm. Is, it, is it only organizations that are aligned with progressive social movements or the Democratic Party? Are these the actors, are these the agents of democratic mm -hmm. improvement in our country? And if so, how does that make the work of a place like Demos harder mm -hmm. or easier, right? I mean, yeah. we, we, we think about bipartisan solutions to, mm -hmm. to, to improving right. our democracy. But are those just completely out of the question and we should be, we should be looking for, for one-way solutions? Yeah. So I bet Miles has some thoughts about this, too. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, why don't you start? <laughs> Actually, I want to I do a quick uh, comment on what Alex raised, um, although it doesn't answer the, the, uh, uh, Brian's question. And that is it, the, one of the issues in the South is, I think, the issues around voting and, you know, barriers to voting and removing the barriers to voting. And North Carolina is so interesting, and, you know, Brenda knows this history as, as well. As North Carolina moved, you know, adopted several major voting-expanding policies, same-day voter registration, you know, again, that Demos was a big part of, and being a model state when it came to implementing the National Voter Registration Act, the motor voter and social service agencies. In the 2008 elections... Almost 600,000 voters used one of those two mechanisms, and it was a huge turnout, okay? And so then when 2010 came along and the, the composition of the Republicans took over in the uh, legislature in North Carolina, the first things they did were to undo all of the attempt. They've been blocked on some of them, you know, those things. So I think that the, one of the things that will happen in the South, that needs to happen in the South, totally agree and really appreciate Heather saying there needs to be a messaging and, and a story that resonates with, with white voters. That's not simply about uh, about race, but it is also about letting the electorate bloom uh, and letting, uh, to the degree that the North Carolina electorate and the Georgia electorate and the South Carolina electorate really genuinely reflect that population, things will change there. Um, so uh, it's interesting. You know, I was, a, 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 as, as Archon said, I was a state legislator uh, in Connecticut. Uh, this was in the mid-'80s to the mid-'90s and had incredibly wonderful Republican colleagues to work with on tax reform and on democracy issues. You know, again, you somebody, you know, Lowell Weicker and Stuart McKinney and Chris Shays, who's now a fellow at the Institute of Politics, and, you know, a whole list of people. And, you know, mostly they're gone. Mostly they have either left the, the Republican Party or been driven out. Chris was the last remaining Republican member of Congress in all of New England in that. 
So, you know, the answer, so, so the, the question is, you're right, it does become harder when the kind of the, 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 the center, the core strategic center of the Republican Party has adopted the, that Southern strategy in so many cases. Uh, that said, there have been interesting places where bipartisanship is possible. There's been some, some real Republican support for the issue of restoring voting rights to, to people with felony convictions. Because, in some ways, because of the Christian redemptionist, everybody deserves a second chance, kind of part of that, of the evangelical um, story. Um, so, you know, there have been some states where bipartisan majorities have, elect, have adopted policies that help that democratic posture. Um, uh, another one is on redistricting reform. Even in, in North Carolina, there's some real Republican support for redistricting reform, partly based on the argument that's being made, which is, do you really want to bet the farm on the fact that you'll still be in power after the t 2020 elections with all the things that are going on in the world? If not, why don't you let's, how about if we agree that on a bipartisan basis to do a fair redistricting, you know, program, and we'll all compete on the same even playing field. So anyway, I think, you, I guess that what I think is there are, it is much harder than it used to be. Much more, you know, when, when I was a common cause, it was a constant question. Can we find Republicans to work with? Can we find ways of being equal-handed in terms of our criticisms? And, you know, yes, you could, um, but it's more difficult. But on the other hand, I think it's, it is really important to look for those opportunities where they exist so it isn't simply a, a partisan issue. Democracy shouldn't be a partisan issue. People should be held to account. It's not, it's not pro-democracy to say I have good reasons why lots and lots of people shouldn't vote. That's unacceptable. But on the other hand, there are ways in which I think we can appeal to the be better angels of, uh, of people on both sides. And I'll just add one quick point on that. Um, this is one of those places where the political class is mo more polarized than, um, than the population as a whole, particularly on campaign finance and money and politics. We were part of a poll leading up to the Gorsuch uh, hearings that found that 91% of Trump voters wanted him to nominate an anti-big money justice. They were solely disappointed. Um, but, I mean, this is this has been seen by the political class on the right as essential political strategy, but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, big money in politics and even some of these voter restrictions are like a core part of the kind of conservative worldview. Uh, I'm Lynn Miles. Do Marshall this. and Archon, you're, are you worried about time? Uh, are you, no, are no, you no. I was, I was just going to jump in. It may not be so much a left-right issue. Marshall, the dean's privilege. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had a democratic egalitarian <laughs> here, so uh, this is a chance to walk the walk here. <laughs> <laughs> Political elite, not political elite issue, right? I mean, as we've talked about, Obama's the one that bailed on public financing of presidential campaigns in 08 and, you know, Democratic states. <laughs> it was Nancy Pelosi that didn't want the Citizens Redistricting Commission in California mm -hmm. to be the primary opponent, right? So I think it's incumbent elite politicians. So if you ask, you know, if you do a public opinion poll, vast majorities of people who are Republicans and Democrats support less money in politics and neutral and redistricting, air yeah, redistricting yeah, process. Heather, I'm, uh, I'm Professor sorry. Gans. Yes. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. No, um, I, was, I was here late, so I didn't get to hear the opening. But I just wanted to go back to the South for a minute. Mm, please. Uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you go. <laughs> On my way. No, I think, you know, when you do union organizing, uh-huh. you, um, you can't just mobilize the people that agree with you. Mm-hmm. You have to engage with the people that don't because those are the people that are there. Yep. Now, it seems like most progressive work for many years has been to mobilize the people that agree with you mm-hmm. for the most part uh, and uh, and not even run candidates mm-hmm. in most red districts mm-hmm. and rest red states, so virtually to withdraw from any engagement. Yeah. And I don't think it's simply a matter of messaging. I think yeah. it's a matter of organizing mm-hmm. because I guess the question is how likely is it that the narratives that you're describing – are going to emerge from a message factory in D.C. Mm-hmm. as opposed from actually doing the work mm-hmm. of engaging with the people and learning how to do it. Yep. So my question is, who's going to do that organizing? Mm-hmm. Well, you should know. <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I did. No, it's a serious question. So um, I do think there are um, some newer organizations um, that are working in places like Georgia and Virginia. Obviously, North Carolina has been a a hotbed. I do think that Reverend Barber's moral movement is is a really powerful formula. Um, uh, There are... I think there are two trends that are going to be helpful for this. One, let's just acknowledge that the terrain, that the parties, um, let me back up one, that political actors and communicators matter. They matter more than we may like, um, but that, you know, when candidates have a platform and a bullhorn, they help shape what people think is possible. Like, that is the primary political storytelling that happens. Um, And so not fielding candidates, not having candidates say what they really think, it has a major impact on, you know, the political understanding of of of, of voters. (laughs) Um, So more of that needs to happen, for sure. And I do think that you are seeing and are going to see by 2018 people flooding the zone in politics at the state and local level. Part of it spurred from the Bernie revolution, part of it spurred from, you know, Indivisible and Emerge and, you know, lots of, like, 4,000 women have signed up to run for, I mean, it's it's a moment, right? And that's really great. Um, but I also think part of the problem has been that as part as the parties have um, become less effective, partly because of things like Citizens United in terms of the money going elsewhere into independent expenditures, um, and more money was spent in super PACs than the party's um, party machinery last year. Um, so the party is sort of withered as a place for real activism and engagement and organizing. And the places that are sort of holding it down for organizing, the community-based organizations um, have had this both philosophical, which I think is very much fading, and I'm seeing that across the community organizing sector, but also legal barrier to actually contesting for governing power um, because of the C3 status. 
and very few uh, grassroots organizing groups have C4s, and certainly even fewer have PACs, and it's very hard to raise money that way. And the political money, you're like, oh, my God, there's too much political money, but it's not going to those groups and to field organizing. So, um, but I think that's changing a little bit, too, at least the demand, the sort of unified demand from the major organizing networks to get more political money, to get it earlier, to have it be... Um, money that is on their program. Um, there's a lot of work being done right now to have um, grassroots organizations identify potential candidates from their memberships and connect up some of the infrastructure that just hasn't been connected to, you know, in some ways really politicize, but, I mean, that's such a kind of um, maligned word, but, you know, I think it was like contesting for governing power. How do you really organize on affordable housing and not try to be the person, you know, try to elect the person who's going to actually pass that bill? And more. <laughs> we do need to be hopeful. Um, yes. But, and a lot of the political money needs to go to organizing. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much money is spent, obviously, as we know, um, and then it just goes to consultants and ads, and it's a massive problem. Let me add one, one optimistic note to this, too, which is I was involved in, in community organizing for the first 15 years or so in, of my career and was, you know, it was incredibly labor-intensive, you know, ordering the buses, begging people to get on them. You know, it was, it was not easy. <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden, but I'm watching what is happening now, um, you know, Yes, it's, uh, you know, there's a question about who is getting mobilized right now. But the idea of 5 million people actually out on a single day on their own without people dragging them out, uh, whatever, but self-mobilizing using all of the new kind of social media tools, et cetera, is extraordinary. And it's only, um, you know, 18 months, really, till the next election. So I do think that, in my mind, I think of it as three parts, which is, one, you know, that to... to cherish and nurture and appreciate the mobilization of the people who are getting active, to connect them, as Heather was describing, to all of that underpinning. I'm really glad you talked about it, because there's an incredible amount. There has been there's an incredible amount of organizing and organization building painstakingly, um, you know, with tools and, and, and trainings and all kinds of things, to which this new, you know, kind of flood can be poured through. And then third, for it to translate into electoral politics, you know, in 2018, 2020. And I'm actually quite hopeful that all that has the potential to happen, partly because of the work that, Heather, that you're doing in trying to help all those groups get together and behave themselves. Yes, you've been patient. And so have you. I'll get to you next. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> so speaking of money, um, I'd like to go back to what you said earlier, Miles, about 40 years of stagnant or declining incomes for the majority of Americans, which is which is pretty clear. So I'm wondering where in the Demos list of priorities mm -hmm. right now, tax reform, mm -hmm. uh, reform of the tax code might lie if it does, because here we are now facing that's an, one another big project that Trump has, uh, this administration has on the docket right now, mm -hmm. which uh, there's a large body of evidence that suggests that it's just going to make the problem worse mm -hmm. and exacerbate what's what's already taking place. So. Either of you? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, so on Saturday, across the country, there are going to be, including one here in Cambridge, tax, mar tax day marches. I'm speaking at the one in D.C. Um, and the message there is, first of all, disclose your 
bleeping tax returns. Um, and actually, there's a bill in the House, a resolution in the House, that the, the Congress shouldn't go through with tax reform from the Trump administration until he reveals his own taxes so that we know how he would benefit uh, from this plan. Anyway, uh, so part of the message is, is that, is, is we still haven't seen the, the tax returns. And, um, but of course, for Demos, the, the reason why we're uh, involved with the march and why I'm speaking is because there's a broader, very important fight to be had about not just the fairness of our tax code, but the, the robustness of it and how much revenue is really needed to power um, a country of our size and complexity and deal with the inequality um, that we are facing sort of pre-distribution uh, in, our, in our labor markets. Um, and so I think that this is um, another place where Republicans are out of step with their base on taxing the wealthy, um, on, uh, you know, using the tax code to help support kind of the common issues that face working and middle-class families, from child care to health care to retirement savings to, uh, to college affordability, although I think progressives lean too much on the tax code for policies like that, but that's a, another story. Um, I think this is something where... Because the Republicans are so out of step, the Republican policy elites are so out of step with their base, anything that is a massive tax cut for the wealthy is, is not good politics um, at this moment. And I think will seem like another betrayal of the sort of phony populism. Um, and I'm hopeful for that reason that when the tax reform is introduced, you'll start to see you know, the, the Freedom Caucus doing its thing and Paul Ryan having this pretty uh, terrifying, stingy vision for, for the future. Um, and the priorities of the conservatives will really seem out of step and tone deaf with how much Americans understand how well the rich are doing. Um, so I actually think that of all the different legislative fights that are ahead of us, that's one of the ones that I hope gets a good full airing um, because I think it's it, we're on good grounds with it. Um, I also think I'm also worried um, about the jobs and infrastructure piece. Um, I think that uh, if I were Steve Bannon, um, I would... I would not have invited you here today, <laughs> just so you know. We'd have about 10,000. That's right. I wouldn't get a word out. Um, um, if I were Steve Bannon, I'd hope you'd listen very closely to what I was saying. Um, uh, no, but if I were Steve Bannon, I would have done jobs and infrastructure first. Um, because if, you know, the president, uh, Donald Trump, has... Um, made a lot of promises about whom he would harm and whom he would help. And he came right out of the gate on the harms and actually hasn't helped anyone yet. And if he can stand at a ribbon-cutting ceremony and say, you know, I passed the Good Jobs for America bill, it was bipartisan because of a bunch of Democrats went for it and the building trades unions went for it, I think we've got eight years of Donald Trump. And so, uh, you know, there's starting to be talk from inside the White House about 
adding jobs and infrastructure to tax reform, like as a sweetener, right? Um, and that's pretty scary because I don't think you're going to see the same Republican disunity on that um, if it's a small enough bill, uh, and I don't don't think you're going to see the same uh, Democratic unity. And the question where the jobs are going to come from, how they're going to be good jobs, that's the terrain that most people are going to judge the success of this administration on who voted for him. And so um, taxes is a good sort of, taxes and budget, is a good moral economic story to engage with. And I think that the politics are generally better for progressives. But on jobs and infrastructure, I think it's pretty dangerous. Yes. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to pivot back to your core role of Demos. You talked about kind of um, expanding the electorate and limiting the influence of money in Mm -hmm. politics. It seems from kind of a lay observer that there's been some progress in your mission to expand the electorate and much less (laughs) in the issue of limiting money. Yeah. Are you concerned about kind of the unintended consequences of expanding the electorate into Mm -hmm. Uh, more poorly educated mm-hmm. and poorly engaged citizens mm-hmm. that are more susceptible to good marketing versus good policy. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all really susceptible to good marketing. Um, I think that, um, and I think people are experts in their own lives. Um, and even if you're not very educated, you know, you should have a voice. And um, I think that the problem, I think that the the solution uh, to bad political choices, right? I mean, you know, sort of a normative claim, but um, the solution to um, wanting to have a richly educated uh, civic uh, society is to expand our college completion and the quality of our education and to do more work on our political storytelling and have better political storytellers who have good values and want to educate the citizenry. We have very few good political storytellers in our society, and I'd say four-fifths of them are on the right. And... um, would you agree, Marshall? <laughs> uh, I felt a little like, oh, we should probably ask. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. All right, I want to make, uh, I'm mindful of time, so we end at 3.30 as we said we would. So maybe two more questions, then I have one, and then we'll give you, or we'll wrap up if you'd like one. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Picking up on your theme of, of storytelling, and I agree with you, the, uh, the right is very good and the left is very poor. The six months since Trump's election have seen reaction. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the turnouts have been in reaction, too. Is this going to be effective in 18 and in 2000? I suspect not. I suspect there's going to have to be a positive story that's going to come from the right to be able to change the complexion of the House and perhaps the Senate. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? There's going to have to be a positive story that will come from the right? Or from the left. left. From the left. Okay. All right. Just making sure. 
Yeah, it's okay. Um, yes, that's right. Um, uh, well, they're right, right? Um, we're left. What does that mean? Um, so, um, uh, yes, absolutely. I do um, believe that we will need um, not just words, but actions. Um I think that we will need to show what can happen when progressives have governing power. And the problem, one of the big problems coming out of, you know, two years of uh, a very visible Democratic president was that people's lives were worse off than when he inherited the White House in many, many ways. Um, that was not his fault, um, I don't think. Uh, I think he only had a two-year governing window in which he did more than, you know, the previous presidents combined to help Americans. But coming from a pretty deep trench, that wasn't just the financial crash, but was 40 years of rising inequality. And so the believability of the progressive promise was really, really hard to sell. Also, and this is a helpful, this was a very helpful eye-opening study. I think it was from the University of Wisconsin. There's an article about it in Vox that studied the Clinton campaign's ads, campaign ads, and found that it had less policy detail than anyone, any presidential candidate since 2000. About 40% less policy detail than Donald Trump. It was all negative on Trump and not just on Trump, but on his character, not his policies. So that's like, it's mind-boggling to those of us who know anything about who she is and anything about the campaign and looked on the website and saw the 400 tabs for different policy issues, right? It's, it's, it's one of those, like, light bulb moments where you realize that those of us who are closely connected politically feel like we know what Democrats stand for. We know what the cleavages are, but, you know, it's like... We've just got the great answers to solve people's problems. Why won't they listen? When, in fact, very few people know what Democrats really stand for. And the not only is part of the problem the policy diversity of our party, that's a nice way of putting it, right? Um, but it's also that the echo chamber is just not there. Um, certainly the echo chamber is not there for the most progressive ideas, the ones that would really, you know, um, really change people's lives and they could, they could see immediately how that would have a demonstrable difference. I think that we are going to be doing much better on that score in 2018 and 2020, um, uh, as progressives and the Democrats particularly, um, are already, I mean, Chuck Schumer is already about to put out a progressive economic agenda that looks much more like the Demos plan than it looks like the, you know, third way or Democratic Leadership Council plan. And that's a good thing. Um, so I think it's possible that there will be a big, bold agenda that people can run on in 2018 and 2020. How deep the organizing is, how strong the echo chamber is, you know, that's, that's the work. You know, I want to add one, one interesting thing to it, going back to the question you raised. This, this is also, this message problem that Heather's describing is also a money and politics problem. 
I can remember in the you know 80s and 90s the real push, and it was twofold to let's not within the Democratic Party where I was, uh, let's not sound too ideological, let's not sound too left wing, but the subtext of that is we need to raise money from the business community just like the Republicans. And if we sound like 1930s labor organizers, we're not going to get the money from Wall Street. And I heard Chuck Schumer say that. I'm glad he's coming around now. <laughs> um, he's a classmate of ours, so you know. Um, anyway, um, and so I think that the, but the, 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 the requirement, the need of raising millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars muffled the progressive voice of the Democratic Party for a very, very long time. And I think it is now, partly thanks to Bernie, mm -hmm. uh, understanding that you, you, there, is, there is a different way. There is a different way. Okay. Uh, all right, Heather, I have one last question for you. Yes. And that you can segue into that. I heard a rumor that you are writing a book. Yes. Can we hear about it? Can we get a little advanced uh, knowledge of this? Um, sure. I thought you were going to say that you heard a rumor that I was running for office. Um, I want to write your first check if you are. <laughs> big money, big money. Campaign. <laughs> sure, I'm to my agenda already. Um, um, I, I am not running for office. I have no current plans to run for office. Um, I, uh, I am working on a book, uh, and the book is um, – aimed uh, not at the good people in this room, <laughs> not at us, um, but is aimed at what I think is a, a rising, latent, incipient, uh, white, anti-racist sort of center who wants to take sides and is repulsed by uh, the racial demonization that is, you know, now getting getting a very strong airing, but also is concerned about their own family and their own economic standing, um, and doesn't want to have to choose between their problems and the worst problems of people of color, or uh, you know, choose uh, between sort of being the protagonist in their lives uh, and uh, or not. And so the idea of the book is to show in a pretty narrative fashion the personal, economic, and social costs of racism to white people and really try to go straight at the zero-sum paradigm of racial competition, which, of course, is, is the paradigm that leads to oppression, the idea that, you know, in order for me to succeed, uh, another group has to uh, be suffering. Um, but is also the paradigm too often in the story that progressives tell about race. It's the same zero-sum thing. It's just, yeah. uh, white people benefit from racism. People of color um, suffer from it. And it's clear that that is true, but that is not only the truth. Um, and that because of the success of the Southern strategy, um, there have been real material, economic, and personal costs to racism as it currently exists in our society, as a political weapon that undermines progressive policies from infrastructure to public education to collective bargaining, um, and as a uh, limit on good government from, frankly, the financial crash, which 
would not have existed were it not for uh, policymakers in the 1990s turning a blind eye to racially discriminatory mortgage policies when they were only affecting the working class black communities in Cleveland uh, before they got gobbled up uh, and turned into um, you know, a global economic weapon. So um, that's, that's the book. It is going out to publishers this week. So if you know any publishers who wanna, um, the proposal is going out to publishers this week. And at some point over the next year, I will find the time to write it. And, uh, and then maybe I'll come back here and Heather, I'll say thank you. I'll give Archon the last word if he wants to, but thank you, A, for being here, and major thanks to you and to the Demos colleagues that came with you today for the incredibly good and wonderful and important work you're doing. So thank you. Thank you, Miles. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash.